Uh, I felt like the Lord just kind of impressed on me the phrase repent and believe, which comes from the book of Acts, uh, as well as other places, but I was thinking of the passage in Acts. Repent and believe. And to repent is really to change the direction you're going or to stop thinking about things the way that you've always thought about them. It has to do with a change of thinking and a change in, of feeling about a particular issue. And then to believe is to fully embrace and to accept the reality of either a proposition or, when it comes to Jesus, to, to believe in a person, not just an idea, not just a statement, but in an actual person. And this morning, I think the Lord wants to lead us through a process of repenting of wrong thoughts about God and wrong thoughts about what it means to follow Jesus, and then call us to believing the correct thoughts about God in the biblical way to follow Jesus. You follow that? So maybe a change of course is in our immediate future this morning, okay? So uh, as I start off with that, I want to kind of just step into the deep end and talk a little bit about something that is really, I think, not very far removed from any of us, and it is the idea of addiction, okay? Um, and that's unfortunately a major issue in Philadelphia, addiction. Maybe we have had that in our own stories. We have had addiction or we currently experience various forms of addiction. There's more than one type of addiction. There could be alcohol addiction, substance addiction like drugs, pornography addiction, uh, but there's other things that sneak under the radar like an addiction to work or addiction to sex or addiction to food that somehow get more of a free pass on things than some other uh, types of addiction. But recently, scientists and doctors have been discovering that addiction is a little more complicated than we thought. Uh, up until recently, we've usually made it about willpower and the decisions that you make and the you know, uh, choices that you make. And there is still a huge element of that. And I'm, I'm never going to let anyone off the hook for taking responsibility for own, their own decisions. But we've also discovered that uh, addiction has both a biological and an environmental element to it. And so we're discovering that some folks are actually born with a predisposition, a genetic predisposition towards certain addictions. So just for the sake of illustration this morning, I'm just going to talk about alcohol. Some people are actually born, there, there are 11 different sets of genes that depending on how they develop, uh, can predispose you to alcoholism. And so some people are born with, we call that a predisposition toward alcoholism, where they're just some would say up to 50% more likely to uh, fall into an addictive behavior as it relates to alcohol. And so it's not only biological, it's also environmental. Uh, even if you're not genetically predisposed to alcohol, if you grew up in an alcoholic family, you might just be more prone to go to alcohol. If it's readily available and you've observed in your entire upbringing that that's how you cope with things is to drink, you're probably going to be more likely to take that practice on yourself. So there's this biological issue where it's, it's in your bones. You know, it's just, it's in your DNA, like you're predisposed to this. Predisposed means you're just inclined to it. Like it's almost like a default behavior. But there's also this environmental aspect where, hey, even though it's not in my bones, it's in my mind. 
That's how you deal with it. I mean, this is what I saw, this is what was modeled, this is what I learned. And so I've picked up this habit. It's not just biological, it's not just environmental, it's also personal. Sometimes we just make decisions, right? I mean, there are certainly people that did not come uh, predisposed biologically to alcohol addiction. There are certainly people that did not grow up in alcoholic households, but made a choice at some point to begin using alcohol to uh, relieve pain or to cope with life. There are also people who come from the most difficult circumstances, who should be predisposed to alcoholism, who should have learned that through their environment, but for some reason have made choices that have not led them down that path. Does that make sense? I mean, we're talking about a multifaceted issue here, not just one singular issue that pushes people down this path. Now, I have great hope for people in addiction because I've seen enough people get free. Enough people have gotten free. They've gotten either the professional help or they've made decisions that have helped them get free and they've maintained that freedom. So I have great hope for that. But this, uh, this concept of addiction actually reminds me of our addiction to sin and the way that we deal with sin because we are all also born predisposed to sin. We inherited it from our parents, Adam and Eve. They did not inherit it. They were born free of that addiction to sin. Adam and Eve chose it. But you and I have a nature, when we're born, we have a nature that is predisposed or inclined to sin. Now, we could just blame Adam and Eve and say, oh, well, it's because of them. But listen, we all also choose our sin. We are born predisposed with a sinful nature, but then we also choose with our own will to sin. And just like Adam and Eve chose it from a, a place of, you know, they did not have a sinful nature, they chose sin anyway, don't think you're any better than them. It doesn't take a sinful nature to sin. Adam and Eve are proof of that. You probably would have done it anyway. Okay? I, you know, I mean you, not me, but you probably would have done it anyway. Okay? Use all. Do you understand what I'm saying? It, it is something we inherit. It is something that's in our environment, right? We, I mean, we all grow up observing sin. We all grow up seeing how, in the short term, it seems like, man, this sinful decision really is going to work out for me. And then it doesn't really matter how many times it blows up in our face. We're always willing to give sin another shot. It's environmental. It's in our nature but it's also personal decisions that we make. Now, whether it's alcohol or sin, wouldn't it just be nice sometimes? Wouldn't you just like ask God, Lord, can't you just change my nature? Can't you, like, whatever this impulse in me that leads me down this path, can't you just take that away and give me a new predisposition and that's actually what happens when a person comes to Christ. Uh, they don't, listen, coming to Christ is not an adventure in self-discipline. It's actually a dead person coming to life. It's a new creation. It's being born again. I mean, these are drastic images that the Bible uses to tell us what happens when a person comes to Christ. And I'm telling you that when you come to Christ, he actually does take the old nature, takes it out, and uh, replaces it with a brand new nature. 
You're no longer a sinner, you're a saint. You're no longer predisposed to sin, you're predisposed toward righteousness. Okay, so why do I keep sinning then? I'm a follower of Jesus, you're saying I have a new nature, why do I keep sinning? Well, because there's still the environmental stuff. You hang around with a bunch of people that are always getting into sin, you're probably going to get into it, right? And just because you have a new nature doesn't absolve you from needing to make different decisions. The environment, Jesus addresses the uh, nature issue when you come to Christ and he gives you a new nature. But then in the process of sanctification, he deals with the environmental and personal issues that also cause us to choose sin. Does that make sense? You following this? So Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 actually tells us a little bit of the process that we go through when we trust Jesus and when changes take place in us, uh, what exactly is happening. So before we get into Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I want to show you a very short sentence that I'd like you to, if you can, memorize this because this will sum summarize all 10 of these verses. Okay, so the statement is this. <coughs> we were dead, but God made us alive so that he could show grace. Does that, can you memorize that? It's not that hard, right? Let's say this aloud. We were dead, but God made us alive so that he could show grace. Now that one sentence really summarizes all of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, Paul, Paul is very wordy sometimes. And he's going to take 10 verses to say this one sentence. But those 10 verses are packed with truth that actually help us understand what has taken place through Jesus' death and resurrection. So, we're going to go through, there are three main ideas that we're going to touch on today. The first idea is that we were dead. Okay? Not sick. Dead. The second idea we're going to touch on is that God made us alive. And the third idea we're going to touch on is that he did this so that he could show us grace. So let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. I'm going to read the whole passage and then we're going to go. Hopefully you'll see where this sentence comes from. We were dead, but God made us alive so that he could show grace. Okay, here's a hint. <laughs> and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, <coughs> of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no, no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. All right, so we're going to go through this portion by portion and explain how we were dead, but God made us alive so that he could show grace. The first concept is that we were dead. Uh, it says it pretty plainly in the first verse. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, right? Uh, so again, not sick, not limping along, not injured, not harmed, dead. 
spiritually dead. How, did, how was it that we were spiritually dead? Well, if you remember back in the early portions of Genesis, <clears throat> chapters 1 and 2, well, particularly chapter 2, God tells Adam, hey, you can eat from any tree in this garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for surely if you eat from it, you will die, die right? And I guess Adam must have been one of those people that interprets the Bible metaphorically. He wouldn't necessarily always be wrong. But in this case, God was pretty serious. And uh, Satan questions that. He says, well, surely you won't die. Right? I mean, that's kind of Satan's thing. God said that? No, that, that can't be right. He said, did the same thing to Jesus. At the baptism of Jesus in uh, Matthew 4, God says, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. The first thing Satan says was, if you're really his son. Right? So, I mean, we know how Satan works. Let's stop falling for it all the time. So he says to Adam and Eve, well, surely, he says to Eve, actually, surely you won't die. And Eve takes the fruit, and uh, she takes of it, and she shares it with Adam, and he takes of it, and they both fall over dead. Well, no, actually, that's not what happens, right? They don't die. Actually, they have to have a, co a confrontation with God. They hide from God. They realize their eyes are open. They realize they're naked. Okay, this is, I mean, this is so deep in our bones, we've all been having nightmares of being naked in public for, for you know, thousands of years, right? I mean, this is, goes back to Adam and Eve, that nightmare. It's a shared human experience. They find out that they're naked, they hide from God, which is just crazy. The fact that you would think you can hide from God. God calls them out, he confronts them, he tells them that they've sinned, and he actually has to remove them from the garden. They don't physically die in that moment, but their bodies do begin a slow process of deterioration and death. But they are removed from the firsthand experience of God's manifest presence. They're, t they're kicked out of the garden. So death in the Bible does not have the same uh, meaning that we always think of it. When we think of dead, we think of someone's body being lifeless. But in the Bible, death refers to separation. Warren Wearsby says this, Neil Anderson says this. When we understand death in the Bible, we, we, th we should think of it in terms of separation. Okay, Because when God says they're going to die, the first thing he does is separates them. He puts them out of the garden. They are now separated from communion with God. And the only way they can be reunited is through Jesus. Okay, Not through their own religious behaviors or anything like that. So... Death refers to separation. Jesus kind of used the same imagery in John 15 when he talked about being cut off from the true vine. That's a separation illustration. A dead branch is one that's cut off and separated. So sin is constantly separating us from God. That's why uh, Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. You could almost translate that to say the wages of sin is separation. The result of sin is this distance between you and God. But then the work of Jesus is always to close that gap and to restore relationship with you and God. I mean, to, to reconcile you back to the Father. Spiritual death is the result of sin. The wages of sin is death. In verse 3, it tells us a little bit how we get to this point. We, in which you formerly walked uh, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's referring to Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the, the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and we're by nature children of wrath. So how do we get to this point of sin? We indulge. We don't indulge in prayer. We don't indulge in Bible study. We indulge in the lust of our flesh, in the desires of our flesh, and even in some thoughts, it says in our minds. We indulge in some thoughts that are not consistent with the renewed mind. Okay, they're not consistent with the kind of thinking that Jesus demonstrated. It's not consistent with biblical thinking. It's, listen, I, almost all sin starts in your mind and your heart. You know, by the time you're acting on it, you've been thinking about it and feeling some sort of way about it for a little bit. I don't, I don't know that anyone just like on a dime is like, sin, you know, Everyone has thought about it, everyone's considered it, everyone's got some stuff in their heart that has led them down that path. So if you want to get free from sin and live in freedom, it does start here and here. If you can be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it says in Romans 12, and you can take every thought captive to Christ, you'll start to live in victory. I mean, there, there is more to it than that. There's a spiritual warfare element, there's an emotional health element, but you can't get there by bypassing your mind. Your mind has to be engaged in that process because that's part of the sanctification process and it's the means by which you're transformed, the renewing of your mind. So we get to this path by indulging in the lusts and desires of the flesh as well as thoughts that lead to sin and death. And it says in verse 3, this is the, the early part of the good news, it says, we were by nature children of wrath. I don't think this is going to make it on any uh, chicken soup for the soul books, guys. We were by nature children of wrath. Listen, before Jesus intervened in our lives, our destiny and our fate and our inheritance was the wrath of God. And I don't know, the wrath of God should be a terrifying thing because he's not limited in the wrath that he can show. Um, I don't know that we take the wrath of God seriously enough and understand like the terror that that brings. Jonathan Edwards used to just tell people about the wrath of God and people got so terrified that they would turn to Jesus just out of sheer fear. I don't necessarily think that's wrong. I just think that's, that probably is not going to sustain you very long. And once, once you come to Jesus, the wrath thing is taken off the table. So what's going to now keep you faithful? It's not going to be wrath. It's going to have to be love for Jesus, right? Wrath, the fear of God's wrath is enough to get you saved. But once wrath is removed from the equation, something else has to keep you faithful. That's going to have to be love. But wrath is part of the equation. And, you know, it's important for us to all accept that, listen, no matter what your mommy told you, you're not perfect. Now, some of your mommies might have demonstrated God's wrath for you or, or toward you. But, listen, you're not a beautiful little flower. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, deserving of God's wrath. And it's only through Jesus that we've been made new and made whole, okay? We're going to get into that a little farther. But I want to, this is so important, I think. Paul uses the word formerly twice in this passage. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you 
formerly walked, past tense. This used to be true of you. And then he says, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, and so on and so forth. Paul's pointing out to them that this is not your present situation, but it is your past situation. If you're a Christian, this is all behind you. Okay, It, it shouldn't be part of your present state. And I want you to know that, listen, if you've come to Jesus, if you trusted Jesus, and if you're a Christian, you're not a dirty, rotten sinner anymore. You're a redeemed saint. You might have used to have been a sinner, but you've been given a totally new nature. I find that generally the people that like to drive this idea home of you know, sinful nature and the power of sin and the wrath of God, they seem to also want to put that on Christians, almost as if sin is more powerful than the redemptive work of Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, you know, the wrath, the sin, the death is all true, but so is the work of Jesus to make that not uh, relevant to us anymore. Okay? I mean, if we are truly made new in Jesus, new creations, if there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ, Romans 8, 1, then it's not the fear of punishment that drives us anymore. It's actually love for Jesus that, that we are reciprocating because we've received his love for us. So, this is all past tense to the Christian. Now, to the person who has not trusted Jesus yet, it is the present tense. It's what they're currently living in. Okay? Really quickly, this is not in my notes, but a little, a little tip. When you're sharing the gospel with people, you have to acknowledge if, if they're not followers of Jesus, they're dead. They're spiritually dead. If you say they don't get it, they don't get it, they don't get it, you're like, yeah, they don't. It's hard for dead people to understand. So what you have to do then is be watching what's God doing in their life to draw them. You know, like he's the one that preveniently goes ahead and draws people. Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except those that have been drawn, right? So instead of, you know, trying to cram something down the throat of a dead person, see, well, what is Jesus doing in their life? Like, can I pick up on this? Are they, are they interested? Are they asking questions? Is there a desire that I can pick up on and then feed that? You know, like water that seed that's already starting to germinate in their hearts. All right, so we were dead, but God made us alive. This is in the next verse. Uh, sorry, next slide. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. If being dead <coughs> means to be separated, then being alive means to be united in union with Jesus. And I love how plain this, this passage says it, and I kind of hit on this last week, but we are alive together with Christ, we are raised up with him, and we are seated with him. Look at how it says, with, with, with. We're no longer apart, we're now with Jesus in all of those ways. We are crucified with Christ, we are raised with Christ. We are seated with Christ, does this make sense? Yes. Okay. So, and we will eventually be glorified with Jesus. And we will reign with Jesus. We're just going to do everything with Jesus. It sounds good. You don't have to wait for that. You can be living with Jesus now. But to be made alive is to be reunited with Jesus. In fact, in all three of those with statements, uh, 
made alive with, raised up with, and seated with, every verb in those sentences starts with the Greek prefix sin, which we would in English spell S-Y-N, like to sink or to synchronize. We are synchronized with Jesus now. You understand? In my home, no two clocks are synchronized. You know, they're all within like a three minute, you know, range. You know, it's, it's always between 954 and 957 in my world. Okay, it's, it's, it's a 180 second window. But when we come to Jesus, he synchronizes us with him. We're reunited. Uh, now, there is a part that we play in learning how to be synchronized with Jesus, maintaining an abiding and maintaining a connection with him so that we don't lose that synchronization. But that's what he accomplishes for us through his death. Now, why did Jesus do this? Well, it says in verse 4 pretty clearly, uh, being rich in mercy and because of his great love. Jesus is rich in mercy and great in love. This is why he does this. He doesn't make us alive with him and seat us with Christ and raise us with him because, oh man, you know, Glenn, I really like what you're doing with your life now, man. I want to I reward you. This is not a reward, it's a gift. Right? He doesn't look at you and say, hey, I like this guy. He's really got it together. Look how well she's doing. I'm going to save this person. That's not how God operates. It's not because of something that's in you. It's because of something that's in him. It's because of his mercy and his love, not your goodness, not your perfectionism, that he uh, saves us. Okay. So why does he do it? Well, it's because of his nature, not your nature. Uh, imagine being unconscious. I don't know if you guys do this. I don't. Imagine you were unconscious. You know, you, you were drowning in a pool or you had a, you know, you passed out or something like that. You're unconscious. You know, what are you thinking about when you're unconscious? Nothing. You're unconscious, right? Are you able to help yourself? No. Can you do CPR on yourself? You are at the mercy of someone else to come step in and act on your behalf, right? I mean, and when you, let's say someone does come and perform CPR on you or wake you up, the first response should be thank you, right? It should be like gratitude. Now, not only were you unconscious, you were dead, dead. Unable to help yourself. Unable to have a correct thought about God until he stepped in and raised you to life. And so the first response should be gratitude. Thank you. You, you didn't do this to yourself. You didn't resuscitate yourself. And you weren't even unconscious. You were dead. Now, we were dead, but God made us alive so that he could show grace. God did this because he was merciful. God did this, did this because he had great love. But he also did this for a, a, an, out, uh, an outflowing or overflowing purpose, which is to show us grace so that we can show others grace. He gave, uh, showed grace to us so that he could show grace through us to other people. We are all saved by grace. It actually says twice in this passage, uh, once it's in parentheses, 
Did I skip it? I think I did. By grace you have been saved. And then he says, yes, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Each one of us is saved by grace. Grace needs like, an, we need to do a makeover on understanding of grace. Grace needs a new PR campaign. Because we have viewed grace as like almost God just like turning his head away from our sin or like sweeping it under the rug. That is not what grace is. Grace is empowerment. We're not saved because God turned a blind eye at our sin. We're saved because God empowered us and brought us to life. I mean, grace should always be understood as empowerment. <clears throat> All of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 are called graces. And they're all empowerments. We are saved by God, the same uh, power that raised Jesus from the dead working in us. It's, it's empowerment. Um, the grace that God shows us here actually prepares us to do good works that he had prepared in advance for us to do. Grace should always be understood as God is giving me the power to do something. If you've ever been in a situation, like let's say someone hits your car. It's their fault. They're being a fool and they hit your car and you get out and like something comes over you and all of a sudden you're just like the most spiritual you've ever been. You know, like you know that, boy, I really should be flipping out right now, but for some reason I'm finally acting like a Christian and I'm being very patient and I'm, oh, are you okay? It's fine. Let's just contact. And, and you're like, what has come over me that I'm actually... Acting out my belief in Christ. That is an example of grace. Okay, so sometimes God will give you the grace to do something. He will empower you to do something that you wouldn't normally do in your own strength. That's an example of God's grace. I have the grace to do this or had the grace to do that. Okay, all right, so. We're saved by that grace. It's empowerment. It is a gift, not a reward. Many, be, I've heard so many people say that, I don't know who to attribute that quote to, uh, but it's a gift, not a reward. <clears throat> if it's a gift, Paul says, uh, it's not the result of works so that no one may boast. That means you can't go around being all self-righteous and smug, like, well, I you know, grew up in the church and... Uh, you know, I am a member, I'm on the board, and I tithe, so of course God would save me. Well, Paul smacks all that away, and he says, listen, this is, this is not of your own works. So you can't boast about it. Now, uh, I might be stepping on thin ice, I don't think I am, but you can't boast about earning it, but I think you can boast about receiving it. Paul boasted about stuff. I think you, if you go around boasting like, Look how good I am, God saved me. That's wrong. But if you say, I'm so glad that God graciously has saved me. I am so thrilled that God has redeemed me despite all my junk. I think that's actually okay. As long as you're boasting in Jesus, not boasting in yourself. Okay? Uh, I think it's good for us to boast in Jesus. I think it's bad if we boast in ourselves. And the way you know you're doing one or the other is how annoying you are to other people. If no one wants to be around you, you're probably boasting in yourself. This grace actually leads us to take action. It says that God has prepared good works for us before we were born. 
God shows grace to us and then through us. Uh, we're actually the workmanship of God. That work, word workmanship is poema, which is the word we get poem from. Before you think you're some like, you know, wooden statue that God has made, you're more like a poem, like a piece of art. I know the ladies are more receiving this right now. Poema. And it, it's the word we get poem from. Like God is working in your life a work of art that's beautiful. And uh, he's been preparing to do this since before you were born. What he's leading us to is a life of good works. Uh, God prepared beforehand we, that we would walk in these good works. What is a good work? Okay, good works are not religious behavior that score you points on, you know, in your Jesus uh, point total. Good works are works of service to others that are the overflow of gratitude for Jesus' salvation in our lives. Works of service to others that are the overflow of gratitude for Jesus' salvation in our lives. And we do good works in a variety of spheres in our lives, but many of you, many of us, there's a specific track where many of our good works fall. So some of you are called to good works at home. Good works with your family, good works in your household. Some of you are called to good works in the community. You know, where it's mostly happening in the neighborhoods and in the blocks and in community uh, situations. Some of you are called to good works at your job. To be faithful in acts of service to others that are the, the result of the overflow of gratitude for salvation of Jesus. Some of you are called to good works within the church. I mean, you're all called to a little bit of all of those, but as you develop in your faith, you might found, find like, yeah, one of those really seems to come up a lot, and I find that I bear more fruit when I do good works in this particular area or that particular area. So you're called to good works. They've been prepared in advance for you to do, which means you don't have to initiate them. You discover them, and then you live those out. Now, I want to close with this one thought before we take communion. Uh, a lot of what we hear in our culture, I'm going to call it pop, popular positive thinking. Okay, pop positive thinking is just New Testament spirituality without Jesus. It's all the stuff that Christians receive, but without going through Jesus. Here's an example. You're perfect just how you are. <laughs> no, you're not. I'm sorry. Uh, here's what the New Testament teaches. You're perfect in Christ. When you take Christ out of that, you make yourself the center. You're perfect just how you are. You're not. You're perfect in Christ. Aside from Christ, you're not perfect. Okay? Here's another one. You have everything you need. No, you don't. You have everything you need in Christ. But when you take Christ out of that equation, again, you have to put yourself in that position. And you get to this self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-self-self. Here's the third one. I could go on all day, believe me. At home, I do. You can do anything. No, you can't. You can do all things through Christ. But again, if you take Jesus out of that equation, now you have, you're saying you can do everything in your own strength. So, you know, here's what popular positive thinking would lead us to believe. You're perfect in yourself. You have everything you need in yourself. You can do anything by yourself. And it's all self, self, self. 
Which is why Jesus said you're going to have to die to self and live to him. This is, all, this is all great stuff. You're perfect. You can do anything. You have everything you need. But you only get to that point through Jesus. And so a lot of what we hear in like positive thinking is just, it's the New Testament, subtract Jesus and replace Jesus with you. And uh, Paul's message here in the beginning of uh, Ephesians 2 confronts that by saying, well, no, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. You were by nature children of wrath. But God made us alive with Jesus. And because of that, we're prepared, uh, well, we are empowered to do good works that he's prepared beforehand. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm grateful for this. I'm grateful for this work of Jesus in my life. Um, this has been said in a variety of different ways by a variety of different people. That Christianity is not about you becoming a better person. It's about dead people being made alive. That's kind of how A.W. Tozer said it. Another guy, commentator named Tony Morita says it this way. Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person. Nor is it about starting a new religious routine. It is about becoming a new person. Not better. Not slightly improved. Following Jesus is not like a New Year's resolution. This is... New creation, born again, brand new start. So if you, are, if you are a person who's been following Jesus for a long time, sometimes it's helpful to get a reminder of what actually has taken place in your life. Sometimes it's helpful to get back to basics so that you can respond to God with gratitude. Sometimes it shakes some of the self-righteousness off, like, okay, yeah, I was starting to puff myself up, but now I'm reminded of this. If you have never followed Jesus, if you've never responded to God, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, this is a brand new day. This is a day where you don't have to be dead in your trespasses and sins anymore. But Jesus will make you alive. He'll seat you with him. He'll raise you with him. And you'll be together with Jesus starting today and moving on into eternity. But there is a responsibility on our part to respond to or react to the work Jesus is doing in our lives. I mean, if you've stumbled into a church on a Sunday morning, there's a good chance Jesus is doing something in your life. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. I'm going to sit up here, and if you would like to pray or talk, come pray and talk to me if, if you've never put your faith in Jesus. For those of you that have, we're going to observe communion this morning. I'm going to ask Glenn Miller if he would come up and help me lead us in communion. Uh, communion is an incredible reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus and the work that he has done for us. Communion is a great reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus and what he's done to redeem us. So I'm going to explain really quickly the meaning behind communion because I don't want us to take this for granted. But the night that Jesus was betrayed, he actually took bread and broke it and he said, this bread is my body. And then he poured out wine. We use grape juice. And he said, this is my blood in the new covenant. And he poured it out. And so uh, the whole concept of communion is a reminder of Jesus' death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, every time you take communion, you're proclaiming Jesus' death until he returns. So what we have is some bread and some grape juice. And the way we do it here at True Vine is you'll come up and take the bread and dip it in the grape juice. Please don't drink from the cup. We need enough for everybody, okay? Plus it's cold and flu season. 
So dip into the cup. Keep your fingers out, please. If you would like to take some time up here at the altar and pray and respond to God, whatever he's doing in your life, this altar is open and available to you. At the end, we're going to bless you and pray and dismiss you. Glenn is going to lead us in our, these are, Glenn's one of our elders, that's why he's up here. I didn't just pick him out of the crowd. Uh, Glenn's going to lead us in our communion um, declaration. This is very tightly based on 1 Corinthians 11. So Glenn, would you lead us in that?